Our scripture today is found in Genesis 32. Genesis 32 is page 27 in your pew Bible. Page 27, Genesis 32, we'll be reading the first 21 verses. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, to the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus shall you say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord, in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes into one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I, might, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I cross this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as sand on the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every, every drove by himself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau my brother meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present pass on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. This is the word of the Lord. The title of this sermon is Jacob's Fright. Jacob's Fright, and that's taken from his admission to the Lord in verse 11, that he has a great fear. And there's something that is, and has been for some time, haunting him. Now, even though words like fright and haunting get me thinking about Halloween, I'm going to resist the temptation to say anything more about that controversial holiday. I, I said way too much last week, and I fear that it caused you to, to lose what little respect you had left for me. <laughs> you might have been able to get past 
having a pastor who likes Halloween, but you're certainly not prepared to overlook how he treats teenagers and the disabled. So, and you shouldn't. You shouldn't. I don't blame you. I'm a terrible person. But can I please just say one more thing about Halloween? <laughs> and it's, it seems to me that October 31st may be the least scary day of the year. And you, you say, how can you say that, Pastor? There's, there's a bunch of zombies and ghosts and goblins about. There's people who look like Freddy Krueger out there and Jason. Not, not Elwell, but... <laughs> Although he, he can be kind of scary. Yes, but we understand that none of that is real. It's all dress-up. It's all fun. It's, it's, a, it's a diversion from what regularly typifies our ordinary life. And you, you ask, well, what does characterize our typical life? What is life like the other 364 days of the year? And I think I could sum it up in one word. It's frightful. It's fearful. And let's just face facts. We are a frightened people. We are folks who are stalked by demons. As Jason reminded us, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We're haunted by our own history. We're scared of our circumstances. Uh, We're fearful of um, our futures. It goes on and on. And I, I suspect that you don't have any issues with the witches and the monsters that come trick or treating. But the witch at your job or the monster that comes home from work, those are the ones that elevate your heart rate. Those are the ones that, that you fear and cause you a great distress. Walking the streets on October 31st is not nearly as frightening a prospect as Thanksgiving dinner with your in-laws a month later. Now, speaking of in-laws, Jacob has je- he's just left one very fearful situation, and he's about to head into another one. When it comes to Jacob and his relational issues, it's, you, you might say it's out of the frying pan and into the fire. So in our passage last week, we got to see a sort of resolution to the conflict between uh, Jacob and his uncle, his father-in-law, Laban. And this came um, not by any admission of guilt on Laban's part, but in the form of a peace treaty, which said that we're not going to pass this marker, these markers here, with an intent to do each other harm. So it's a sort of a resolution to that long-standing conflict between these two men. And most importantly, I'll remind you, we got to see how the Lord was present and how the Lord protected his people in the midst of their fears. That's something I hope that we'll get to see again today. But as we come to chapter 32... Uh, we're coming to a new fear, or should I say a renewed fear. We'll want to pay attention to see if, if the Lord is going to continue to offer his presence and his protection in the midst of this renewed fear. And through Jacob's example, uh, we're going to have an opportunity to consider what to do when we're frightened. And that's, that I think will be helpful because... Um, maybe you'll agree with me that we are frightened an awful lot of the time. So uh, let's, let's try to understand 
what, to, what do we do with our fear? What, what do we do in the midst of our um, situations that distress us? Now, this is a very exciting chapter. This will take us a few weeks to get through chapter 32. It's exciting because we get to see the Lord do an amazing work in Jacob's life. We get to see kind of sanctification in real time for Jacob. And we're going to trust that through it, through our study of this chapter, the Lord is going to work sanctification in us as well, that he'll make us more holy, that he'll make us resemble more the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's look first at the problem. The problem. My problems are all behind me. And that's what George Brett of the Kansas City Royals famously said about 40 years ago now when he was forced to leave game two of the World Series in the middle of the sixth inning. It was because of hemorrhoidal pain. My problems are all behind me. And Jacob might have felt the same way, you know, as Laban gets smaller and smaller in his camel's rearview mirror. That guy, Laban, that guy was a royal pain in the butt. But, and Jacob might, might have thought, oh, finally to have that behind me. But actually, Jacob has a major problem ahead of him. It's not a new problem. It's a 20-year-old problem. He, he thought that it was far behind him. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, he fled his homeland from it, so he thought he had put it behind him. But now, in obedience to the command of God, he is returning to his homeland to the land of his forefathers, which means that this old problem is now once more in front of him. And last week we talked a little bit about our tendency, this uh, sinful tendency that we have to be problem avoiders. Uh, We prefer to run and hide from our problems. We prefer to bury our head in the sand rather than to face our fears head on. But the Lord, maybe you've discovered this by now, the Lord is way too gracious to allow us to get away with that. He's much more interested in our sanctification, in our holiness, than he is in our comfort. Have you ever discovered that about our God? And one of the tools that he uses is the conscience, which, if it's working properly, never really allows us the relief we seek until we resolve things in the proper way. And the bottom line is that Jacob has sinned grievously against his twin brother Esau. You remember that he deceived him, he robbed him from his birthright, and then stole his father's blessing from him. Think back 20 years ago to chapter 27. It feels like 20 years ago. It was just a few months ago, but... In chapter 7, we we read that Esau hated his brother Jacob because of all of this. And he comforted himself, you know, after he had been robbed by Jacob. He comforted himself, the text says, by making plans to kill Jacob as soon as it was, basically as soon as daddy's funeral was over. And even though Jacob ran away, you have to believe that for the last two decades, he's he's got that weighing on him constantly. You you have to believe that Jacob slept with one eye open, gripping his pillow tight. He's never free. 
And the reason is because he's unforgiven. There, there's no, there hasn't yet been a resolution to this conflict. And kudos to Jacob. Because it appears that he's avoiding the conflict no longer. This is kind of hard to see unless uh, we know something about the geography. And technically speaking, geographically speaking, it is possible for him to return to Canaan without going through the territory that his brother now occupies. And verse 3 tells us that Esau is in a land called Seir, or Seir, I'll call it Seir, in the country of Edom. And those three proper names, Esau, Seir, Edom, when they come to us in rapid succession like that, are actually very evocative. Esau, you may remember, means hairy. Seir also means hairy. And Edom means red. So this land seemingly has taken on the characteristics of its inhabitant. As you um, maybe remember from Esau, Esau's a big, burly, furry ginger. And so verse 3 is designed to warn us that coming into Esau's territory, we might say, things have the potential to get pretty hairy. I think that's what the authors maybe... Uh, wanting us to feel. Of course, Jacob knows this, which is why he sends messengers ahead of him to do some advance scouting slash some PR work. And they're, they're instructed to tell Esau, thus says your servant Jacob. You see how he's humbling himself. He's taking the lesser position. He says, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. And the point there is, without really coming right out and saying it, the point is, they're yours for the taking, if you would like them, if that would help. And what Jacob is ultimately seeking is, as we come to understand, to find favor in the sight of his brother. He wants to be back on his brother's good side rather than to have all of his animosity. Now, it's not clear that these messengers actually got to deliver this message. The text is a little bit ambiguous on that point. It, you, you more get the feeling that when they approached, they saw Esau coming in their direction, and he's coming with 400 men. 400 men is the size of an army. So that, that's not by mistake. We're meant to, and, and what the uh, messengers deduce from this is that Esau is coming with an army and he's coming with hostile intent. And so it's very likely that the messengers just, as soon as they saw that, turned on their heels and ran back to Jacob. And you can imagine Jacob's reaction to their report. If you can't, you can learn about it in verse 7. It says, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. So this is a problem. It's a big problem. And the question is, what is Jacob going to do about his problem? What, what is he going to do with his fear? That is a question for all of us. 
because we may not have that specific problem, and yet we have those kinds of problems. We have uh, similar fears. And I realize that your circumstances are not identical to Jacob's, but undoubtedly you have some significant problems. Maybe even right now they're looming large. I, I would ask you, are you ever greatly afraid? Do you ever get greatly distressed? What do you do? We'll turn to that question again in just a minute. I want that question to just kind of linger. And there's something I, I need to show you before we turn and answer it full on. And here's what I want to show you. This is our second point, if you're taking notes. The protection. The protection. This is point number two, but it should have been point number one. Okay? I, I made a mistake on purpose. But I, I want to draw your attention to it. You'll, you may have noticed that the problem is described in verse, beginning in verse 3. But to get there, I skipped over verses 1 and 2. I want you to now see why I did that. And I want you to understand that before the problem was present, before he saw Esau, Jacob saw something else. He saw something rather astounding, something that ought to have prepared him to face basically any future fear. What did he see? Verse 1, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Angels. He saw angels, and not just one or two. Don't misunderstand. This was an angel army that was encamped around him. And I, maybe this does for you what it does for me, and which is to remind me of the situation in 2 Kings chapter 6. You remember that story when the king of Syria was, he was sick and tired of Elisha, the prophet, blowing all of his uh, plans to attack the king of Syria because God allowed Elisha to see it ahead of time or to hear it ahead of time and to give warning to the king of Israel. The king of Syria is fed up with this, so he sends his massive army to Dothan, where Elisha is at the time, in order to dispatch of that problem, prophet. And Elisha's young servant was, was scared when he looked out and when he saw this massive army with horses and chariots coming for them. But Elisha, you remember, was totally undisturbed. He had the eyes of faith. The young man didn't, so Elisha prayed for him. He prays for the servant. Oh Lord, please open up the eye, his eyes that he may see. And we read, So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots. Chariots of fire all around Elisha. What a, what a glorious vision. What a confidence-inspiring thing to see when there's an approaching army. You, you get to see an army of angels dispatched from God himself, and they're surrounding God's man, and they're more powerful than any foe could ever be. This same reality gave the psalmist great confidence. And so we read in Psalm 34, 7, 
The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now maybe you're thinking, maybe you're getting theological on me, and you're thinking that this thing where God deploys a host of angels in support of his people is something that the Lord really only did in Old Testament times. You know, it's part of the, the benefit package that they had back then, but these days he, he appears to have dropped coverage, you know, that particular benefit. But the author to the Hebrews asks in chapter 1, verse 8 of, of his book, and he asks this almost rhetorically, he says, are not angels ministering spirits sent to serve and to save the Lord's people? The expected answer is, yeah, that's what, that's what angels are. That's what angels do. And yet, I don't know if you're anything like me, but we're reluctant to take comfort in this good gift of God. But D Jacob takes great comfort in it. When he sees angels of God, he, he lays claim to that promise. And he does so by naming that place. He, uh, he calls it Mahanaim, which means two camps. That's what that word means, two camps. So there's Jacob's camp, but then there's God's camp, two camps. I know it's a little confusing, who are these two camps, but I think that's the most natural reading. It's Jacob's camp, all of his entourage is one, and then God's camp, his angel hosts of um, soldiers are another camp. And J uh, Jacob name, giving this name to this place is him believing in and basking in the protection of God. It's a beautiful thing. This is Jacob understanding that he is not alone. It's not just his own camp. There's two camps. The Lord is with him. Now, you might find it interesting to remember that this is not the first time that Jacob has encountered angels and been encouraged by the presence of God. This is not the first time that he has memorialized a place by naming it in light of what he has just experienced. You remember that stairway to heaven, you know, with angels ascending and descending on it? Remember Bethel? Is the name that he gave to that place. And now I want you to remember the timing of that glorious vision. It, was, it happened as Jacob is leaving his homeland to go to Laban's. And now Jacob has another view of the angels as he's leaving Laban's and returning to his homeland. So he has this great vision He's allowed this great sight coming and going. The Lord is hemming him in behind and before. He's laying his hand upon him. He's, it, it's a strong, actually, it's a strong uh, figure to, uh, to bolster the meaning, which is that the Lord is with us. He's with his people. And you know the, the passage that's written, for he will, concern his, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. On their hands they shall bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
It's a beautiful promise, a beautiful, gracious thing for the Lord to encourage his man with this view. But let's go back to the timing of this glorious vision. This passage begins with a view of the angels before Jacob's problems with Esau are in view. It it was designed to be preemptive so that when when Jacob eventually hears about his brother and about his brother's approaching army, he's already seen the Lord's army encamped around him. Do you see? That's, that's the design. And I understand we've got this lingering question that we need to deal with, which is, what, what is what's Jacob going to do about his problem? What's he going to do with his fear? And when you put a question like that, when we ask something like that, we expect that the answer is going to lie somewhere in the future. What are you going to do with your fear and your distress. And we think, oh, it's the, the answer to that is something in the future. But actually, the answer lies in the past. Jacob can entrust his problems and his fears to the Lord whose army has already encamped around him. Do you see? It's something, it's something previous that Jacob needs to go back to. Now let's do us. Okay, what, what are you, you going to do with all of your fear and all of your distress? And the answer is not necessarily in front of you. It's, it's likely not going to be a secret yet to be discovered. The answer is actually behind you. It's something that the Lord has already shown you. Chances are the truth that, that will set you free is a truth that you already know but have forgotten. Do you know that most of your progress and mine in the Christian life will be made not by uncovering some new truth, but by rehearsing old truth? Your, your most important resources for your future fears are in your past. And there's nothing more important than the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing that is more relevant for your present problems and for your future fears than the gospel, than that decisive event in the past, than that declaration, it is finished when we were reconciled to God, Jesus Christ making peace by his blood, Jesus Christ brokering peace between the two camps, that's the most significant event in all of human history and in all of your life. And it is enough resource for you to make it to heaven. Do you see, brothers and sisters, that the cross is God's preemptive word spoken against any anxieties or any fears that you will ever face? Here's an example of how the logic works. It works like this. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up, how will he not also with him 
graciously give us all things. If God in Christ before us, who could be against us? This is why it's essential that you regularly rehearse the gospel, that you preach the gospel to yourself on a daily basis. This is why Jesus established a meal of remembrance, the Lord's Supper, we call it, or the Lord's Table. And it's something that he set forth to be undertaken, to be participated in regularly. So not only is your soul being malnourished when you go multiple months, multiple, maybe even years without participating in communion, not only is that happening, but you are also way more susceptible to succumbing to temptation and to fear. Because the, 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 the secret, if you will, of facing your fears and your anxieties is, is what's happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. And you need to remember that. So what are we to do with our fears and our anxieties, all of our problems? Well, first, take encouragement in what the Lord has already shown you, what he has already accomplished for you. Now, there's another strategy in the text, and we'll take this as our third point, the prayer. The prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. That's not just a Sunday school answer. That's not just a, you might think, a cheesy hymn lyric. That is the strategy. That is the secret. Prayer is your lifeline. The Heavenly Father invites you and delights when you cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. So Jacob is greatly afraid and distressed. And what do we find him doing? A verse later, praying. In fact, what we have here is the most substantial prayer that we have encountered yet in Genesis, in the Bible. And in many ways, it's a model prayer, <coughs> one that we can learn a great deal from. So very quickly, I want to let Jacob show us four elements of a powerful prayer. Four elements of a powerful prayer, and these will, I don't know how he did this, but there's, they're all begin with A. Four A's here, and each of them have their own verse. I want you to notice first the address. Verse 9, Jacob invokes God as the God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. Do you see that he is appealing to the God who has entered into covenant? Into a, he, has, he has initiated this covenant relationship with these people, this family. And this God has dealt faithfully with his family for three generations. All of this is acknowledged in the way that Jacob addresses his God. But this, you understand, is not just the God of Jacob's forefathers. It's his God as well. 
This is the God who has authority over him. This is the God who has recently commanded him to return to his country and to his kindred, that God may do him good. Now what's going on here? Why, why does Jacob address God this way? Why the history lesson? Does God need to be reminded of his relationship to Jacob and to his father and grandfather? No. The reminder is actually primarily for Jacob. In the same way, when Jesus instructs us about prayer, when he teaches us to pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, he's not doing this so that we would you know, be, be letting God know who he is. No, this is for our sakes. The way that we address God, yes, it, it gives him the honor that's due his name. We, we pray, hallowed be your name. So there's honor there, but it also functions to remind us of some of the key things about the one to whom we are approaching. Namely, that he's a loving Heavenly Father. This is like, this is not going to uh, curmudgeonly uh, third party some, some king, some ruler who doesn't know you. This is like going to your dad, if I can say that reverently. He's a God who has graciously entered into covenant with us. He's a God who has been faithful for generations. He's a God who, by his own initiative, has determined to do us good. And that's such a good pattern for prayer, to begin to rehearse the very precious promises of God, even as you are calling on his name. Don't just skip over that part as a formality when you properly and biblically address God the way that he ought to be addressed, there's actually, there's actually stuff to get you already thinking in the right mindset about prayer, about who you are, about your situation, about who God is for you. I want you to notice a second element. There's an admission. There's an admission in verse 10. Jacob acknowledges, I am not worthy of the least of all of the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For only with my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. He, he's referencing the fact that he has so many people and so many possessions that he's able to divide them up into camps. He, he's received not just a blessing, but a double blessing. But the point is that Jacob understands that he deserves nothing, that he is totally unworthy, even of the least act of kindness that the Lord has done for him. Even of that least act, Jacob knows himself to be completely unworthy. And this is the proper posture for prayer. And we, we must go even further, which is to confess ourselves to be sinners in the sight of God. To pray as the Lord, again, instructs us that God would forgive us our trespassers. That he would forgive us our debts. You know, you don't just waltz into the presence of God like that Pharisee who thinks he's worthy and therefore entitled 
No, you admit that you are unworthy and you take the posture of a servant, of a beggar, because that's who you actually are. And beggars plead for things. Beggars beg for things. And, you know, that's not the, the dark underbelly of prayer. That's the heart of it. We, where we petition this God. And so in the words of that old hymn, Come, my soul, thy plea prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee pray. Rise and ask without delay. You don't have to feel bad about asking, about requesting, about pleading for the Lord to act. This is what he delights in. And this is the third element. You could say the ask or the appeal. Your choice. So here's um, Jacob's ask in verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. I love that. I love that Jacob doesn't hesitate to bring his fear before the Lord. He's admitting that he's afraid. Do you do that? Or do you, when you're praying, do you kind of edit yourself so that you don't come off as too needy? But we are needy. We are needy. That's, like, that's kind of the point, isn't it? Isn't that the point of prayer, that we're desperately needy? and we're weak and we're helpless, why not admit that? It's kind of like if, if, um, if Tom Dewey's asked to tutor a kid in math, and the kid spends the whole hour every week trying to prove to Dewey that he's the next Pythagoras. What a waste. And by the way, the kid's not fooling Tom. And we're not fooling the Lord with our perfect, I've got it all together prayers. Confess that you're sinful. Admit that you're weak. Tell the Lord that you're deathly afraid. And then let your request be made known to him. Jacob's ask, well it boils down to two words. If you kind of remove all of, all of the stuff, it, it's really just two words, deliver me. And it seems to me that the very best prayer requests are like that. They're only two words. Bless me. Forgive me. Help me. Save me. Keep me. Jacob prays, deliver me. And not just him, but the, the mothers and, and the children. It's perfectly natural, of course, that he would have um, concern for the safety of his family. Um, although it's a little bit uh, suspect, he eventually uh, you know, is at the end of the line. So it's kind of a uh, women and children first, except maybe when you're approaching a potentially hostile army. Anyway, he, it's natural for him to have concern for the safety of his family, but that leads us to the fourth element of his prayer, and that is the aim. 
the aim. What's Jacob shooting for here? Well, survival, yes, that's clear. But it goes beyond that. Listen to how he continues in verse 12. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Do you see what he's doing here? He's pleading the, prom- <coughs> the promises of God. That's how he began with the address. And this is how he is ending. And it lets us know about his aim. I think A.W. Pink is very helpful on this point. He, he notices that at the close of, of Jacob's prayer, quote, he was prompted by a far worthier and higher motive than for his flesh and blood to be saved. Pink continues, quote, in this conclusion to the prayer, we may see an eye to God's glory. What, what would be the result to the Lord's reputation if his chosen people were exterminated by an angry Esau? What would become of, of his promises, all of the promises that he has made to generations and generations of people? Do you see that God's glory is tied to his faithfulness, to his promises? And on the basis of those promises, and with an aim to his eternal glory, do we bring our petitions before him? That, that's, that's a prayer that the Lord will answer when you have in the forefront of your mind and your heart where your greatest desire is not just relief you know, for yourself or for your family in the physical situation, but when you are aiming for the glory of God and for his eternal reputation as one who is always faithful and who always keeps his promises. That's how... That's a powerful prayer. That is a prayer that the Lord will definitely answer. And so we are taught to pray, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. I'm not going to say amen because you might think I'm done. (laughs) I'm almost done. But brothers and sisters, are you frightened? Are you in great distress? Pray, pray, cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. And pray in this way. Pray, you know, forget the prayer of Jabez. I mean, it might be slightly helpful to you, but how about this, the prayer of Jacob? Address your covenant God. Admit your unworthiness. Confess your sin. Admit your fear. Ask for deliverance and aim always for the glory of God. Well, we've seen the problem, we've seen the protection, we've seen the prayer. Let's look fourthly and finally at the plan. The plan. Now, notice that after Jacob gets off of his knees, he gets down to business. And when it comes to reconciling with his brother, there's some work to do. Jacob, as always, is a man of action. And action, I want you to understand, is not antithetical to prayer. Even in the context of a conflict, you know, wise Christians have often 
they, they've always understood that prayer and plans are not opposed to one another. You know, we have phrases that have come to us from wartime. Phrases like, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Uh, or, pray and keep your powder dry. Have you heard those? Okay. Those are, trust me, those are phrases. And they're, they're meant to communicate this balance. And we have a hard time striking that balance because when it comes to our own fears and our own conflict, we tend to think of those as ors rather than ands. And we, we either fall to one side or the other. One ditch or the other typically gets us. On the one hand, we might devote ourselves wholly to prayer and expect that the Lord is going to completely resolve things for us kind of in a vacuum without, you know, just in his own time, in his own way, in his own initiation. Or, here's the other ditch, we totally avoid prayer altogether and we get busy, you know, doing all sorts of things in our own flesh. And we usually make a hash of it. But the balance is biblical. We're to both pray and act. And this is what we see Jacob doing in this passage. Now, the problem with Jacob is that it's not always easy to judge his actions. You know, some seem like the exact right thing to do. Others seem a little bit sketchy, if we're honest. And if you read commentaries on this chapter, you'll see scholars like fall out on one side or the other. Either they'll say that Jacob's actions here are praiseworthy or they're atrocious. And I, this isn't a cop-out, I hope, but I think the answer, the correct answer, is like somewhere in the hazy middle where you're just not really sure sometimes. And if that's true, if the answer to whether his actions are praiseworthy or, or bad, then that's actually comforting for a guy like me because it's in that general vicinity where my actions typically fall. On the one hand, it does seem a little bit untrusting of him to divide up his possessions into two camps. You know, his strategy is to divide and conquer, or actually, better, divide so that you won't be totally conquered. Uh, Basically, he's, he's hedging here because he knows that an enemy can only chase in one direction. And it's better for him to escape with half of his family and half of his stuff than for all of them to fall. But the idea, there's that phrase again, two camps. Jacob's dividing his his possessions up into two camps, and I can't help but be reminded of verse 2, when it was Jacob's confession that there were two camps, his camp and God's camp. He was very aware of the presence and the protection of God. And now he's forgotten about that one camp and he's just dividing his own camp up into two camps. It seems like maybe he is forgetting something pretty important. On the other hand, there is this earnest desire to reconcile with his brother and to make restitution for 
the blessing that he stole. The word that Jacob uses throughout these chapters for present is the same word that was used for blessing. And so it's clear that he wants to restore things with his brother. He, he wants to return the blessing that he stole, in other words. And this comes in the form of elaborate gifts. You can read about them there in the text. These, these gifts are like tons of animals. Literally, tons. There's, there's 550 valuable animals here. It's a huge entourage. And these were to be paraded out to meet Esau in waves. Now, if Esau is preparing to meet Jacob on the battlefield, he, he might be expecting that there's going to be wave after wave of soldiers you know, engaging in unrelenting attacks. That, that would be a, a common strategy. But instead, Esau's about to be hit with wave after wave of kindness. And finally, at the end of the parade will be his brother, Jacob, bowing down with his face on the ground, begging for forgiveness. Now, some, some commentators, again, put this down to just crass, works righteousness on the part of Jacob, hope, you know, hoping some way to earn his brother's favor. But I'm actually convinced by one commentator who thinks that this action on Jacob's part perfectly anticipates Jesus' teaching on the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount. You know, uh, the teaching where he says, you need to go quickly and be reconciled with your brother before you come with a gift to me, go be reconciled with your brother. And then later, come to terms quickly with your accuser before he hauls you into court. Jacob seems to be anticipating this and, and also with the kind of kindness towards enemies that Jesus also preaches about compellingly on the Sermon on the Mount. And friends, I wonder... Let me just put this out there. I wonder if today it might be necessary for you to be reconciled to someone. Some of you still need to be reconciled to God through repentance and through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you are and have been estranged from a brother or sister in Christ maybe for 20 years. And the challenge to you, the command really, comes to you, go, leave your gift, and be reconciled. Insofar as it depends on you, live at peace with all men and women. By God's grace, may we be a people who see all of our fears and trials and conflicts in the light of the gospel and in light of the very precious promises of God, may we be a people who daily, hourly, bring our fears to the feet of God in prayer. May we be a people who are not only moved to pray, but people who are moved to, to godly action. May we be a people who are eager to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And may God receive all the glory from it. Amen? Amen.